Thanks, Kennedy, and it's good to be with you. I always look forward to this morning and other times when we gather together um, as believers and some maybe on the way. And uh, we're going to be looking into God's Word this morning like we do. We are Westside Bible Fellowship Bible on purpose because that's our authority for all that we do in practice. And we want to listen carefully to that. I was impressed, uh, just moved by some of the songs that we sang this morning having to do with God's holiness. I think sometimes we take that for granted. It's sort of a theological term. And it really doesn't grip us with the fact of how holy God is. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is perfect in all of His ways, all of His attributes. We are not. And so the logical response for us is to bow before Him and His holiness. Admit to Him that we're not holy. And ask us to speak whatever He would like to speak this morning. I'd like to talk to you for a couple of minutes about warning signs. We've all seen them. Some we don't like. Some we ignore. Some we obey. The one on the left that you're looking at now, danger, high voltage. Keep out. That's for a purpose so that we don't touch something we're not supposed to touch. And in the process, get electrocuted and die. And the one on the right, bridge out, we've seen those signs, and I guess somebody could look at that sign and say, I've always gone this way, and keep on driving and end up dead in the bottom of a river or or a ravine or a gorge or something like that. Warning signs warn us of danger ahead and consequences if we fail to obey those signs. Here's one. The top of Vernal Falls at Yosemite National Park. How many have been to Yosemite? We've been a couple times. But one of the big falls there is called Vernal Falls, and there's a very obvious large sign that warns you not to wade in the water above the falls. In fact, it says, and it's a little bit hard to read, but it says that if you are swept over the falls, you will die. It uses those words. Pretty clear. A few years ago, there was a a church youth group from California that went, hiked up to the top of Vernal Falls. And um, three of the youth, actually, they weren't that young. They ignored the sign. They climbed over the railing and began to wade in the waters above the falls. Here are their pictures. The girl started wading. It's very slippery. She began 
to fall. She slipped, fell into the water. One of the guys reached out to grab her, and both of them started to move toward the edge of the falls. And then another guy tried to catch the two of them, and he too, and all three of them, plunged screaming over the edge of the falls and died. Warning signs are for a purpose. We don't like them, but we need them. There was somebody who was watching that whole affair from the right side of the fence and um, commented later that she remembers the look of terror on one of the guy's faces knowing that he was going to die in five seconds. Jesus gave warnings in his teaching. And Jesus knew about danger ahead because he knows everything. He knows what will happen now. He knows what will happen in the future. And he knows what will happen if we ignore his teaching, his warnings. We're going to look at one of the warnings this morning. And I'm going to warn you, some of you will probably feel uncomfortable with what we're going to see in Luke chapter 16. We like messages about comfort, positive messages. There's a lot of negativity here in this story that Jesus is going to tell. But I encourage you to listen carefully, pay attention, note the warning, the warnings, and respond like Jesus would have you respond. Last week, uh, we were in the first part of Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in the latter part of it this morning. But Herb talked about money. Jesus told a parable about money, and the whole point of the parable was use money for the future. Some of the people who are listening to Jesus giving that parable um, responded in a negative way. In fact, it says in verse 14 that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees were a religious group. They were kind of among the religious leaders of Israel during this time. And they were in charge of the spiritual welfare of their nation. But a lot of them had hearts that were far, far from God. And it had been going on for many, many years. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his teaching. They didn't like what he said about money, about laying it up for the future because they love money to use for their own purposes for the present. And so they reacted in this negative way and actually ridiculed Jesus. Jesus knew that. And he responded by telling another story that we find in our passage this morning, 
We're going to be starting with verse 19 of chapter 16 of Luke and going to the end of the chapter. Let me read. Um, It's about two men. One was a rich man. The other was a poor man. We know the poor man's name. His name was Lazarus, which was a very common name in that day. They were very different. They lived very different lives. And then we see that both of them died and the tables turned radically. Let's read from verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. It says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Here's a rich guy living a very comfortable life. He had great clothes, fine clothes. He had fine food. Everything was fine and dandy with him. And then he's contrasted in this story with the poor man, Lazarus, who is just the opposite. He was poor. He was sick, covered with sores. He... um we assume was disabled because it says he was laid. He was carried and put at the gate of the poor man's house. And to make matters worse, he was humiliated. Dogs in the Middle East are some of the most unclean animals that you'll ever see. We used to live in the Middle East. We saw this mangy, diseased, and they were despised by the people. People would throw rocks at them. But here we have dogs actually licking this guy, transferring, in in the minds of some, transferring the dog's uncleanness to this guy. And so he lived a very, very miserable life. But both died. And their lives changed instantly, like always happens when someone dies. Always. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was married. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What a dramatic change. The poor man dies and he's carried by angels to what's called Abraham's side, equivalent to heaven. Who knows? Was he buried? Doesn't say. It could have been... They just threw his body on some garbage heap. But the real part of him, the soul, was carried by angels into heaven. The poor man, or the rich man, also dies. 
He was buried. I'm sure he had a very elaborate funeral. All kinds of kind things said about him. And that he's buried probably in a very expensive tomb. And But he finds himself not in heaven, in paradise. He finds himself in Hades. Need to define a couple of words. Hades is the place where the souls of dead unbelievers are kept until the final judgment. We'll talk about that. It's a temporary place. The body goes into the ground. The soul, the real part of the person, goes to this place called Hades. It's kind of a holding place until the final judgment occurs. Hell, on the other hand, is a permanent place. It's the place where all unbelievers go after the final judgment. One is before the judgment. Hell is after. Everyone who is not in heaven, when they die, they go to Hades, then there's the final judgment, and they go to hell. Hell, I believe, is in place right now. It's been prepared for Satan and his angels. Jesus taught on that. But I don't believe there's anyone in hell right now. That will come later. Hades is a foretaste of hell. Jesus refers to the fact that there's suffering and torment in Hades right now as this man is going through it. The rich man has two requests that he makes of Abraham. By the way, conversation back and forth. They can kind of see each other. See the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus in this place of paradise, heaven, and there's a conversation back and forth. Scripture doesn't teach that this is what really happens. Jesus, I believe, adds these details to make a point that there is a division, there's a separation. And he makes the point to emphasize the suffering that's going on with this rich man. But the rich man makes two special requests of Abraham. Number one, he asks for Lazarus to come and relieve his suffering. Verse 24, let's read this. It says, he called out, that is the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to just dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame, he says. Abraham in the story responds this way. Verse 25. Abraham said, Child, remember 
that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like matter, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Here's a situation where Abraham simply reviews the facts, what the rich man's life was like before and what the poor man's like life was like before, and now how the tables have changed, and Lazarus is being comforted, and the rich man is in agony, anguish, it says here. Basically, Abraham says, it's too late. There's no communication. Lazarus cannot come to where you are because there's a chasm, a separation between the place. And essentially telling the rich man that there was no hope for him. That as I think about it, must have been awful. You know, if you're marooned on an island, there's a possibility that a ship will come along, see you, and rescue you. But here's a situation where there's absolutely no hope of rescue. The rich man has no hope that he will come out of that place and then subsequently out of hell later on. An absolute hopeless situation. And we need to be afraid of that. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that's something to fear. If you know Him, there's nothing to fear. But if you don't know Christ, you've never trusted Him as your Savior, it's something to fear. The second request of of, of the rich man is for Lazarus to warn his brothers. He says in verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, if you can't send Lazarus to me here, I beg you, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Some people have the idea that hell's not going to be so bad. My family, my friends will be there, we'll have a good time, like an eternal party. This negates that whole idea. Here is the rich man, has five brothers. He does not want them to come and join him there. He wants them to be warned so that they do not have the same fate as he does. And in verse 31, Abraham says to him, 
If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here, the rich man is asking for for Lazarus to be raised miraculously from the dead, sent to his brothers, and he says, when they see this miraculous thing, they will finally believe, they will repent and believe. And Abraham says, nope. They've already had the opportunity to hear God's word from the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They apparently had rejected that and nothing else would convince them. It's not that they didn't have enough information. They didn't respond to what they already knew. A warning. When God speaks to you, when He speaks to me, we need to listen. We need to respond as He's calling us to do. I dread being resistant to the voice of God, resistant to His Word, to the point where He would stop speaking to me and just let me go. And that is what can happen if our hearts are stubborn and resistant to Him. Now I want to take a little turn here in the message. You can see that Hades for someone who is an unbeliever is an awful thing. There is suffering. I'm not sure exactly what suffering there is. But it's a terrible place for someone who is there, does not know Jesus. But if Hades is bad, hell is worse. That comes later, and it's worse. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 20. I love this chapter, parts of it. Other parts are pretty scary. In Revelation chapter 20, Satan comes, his last hurrah, and he begins to deceive the nations. Deceive them into attacking God's people. Fire comes down. It's interesting how often fire is used in the context of God's judgment in Scripture. Fire comes down, consumes the nations, and then Satan is taken and he is thrown into the lake of fire, it says. Fire and sulfur burning hot. It's like a lake instead of water, it's flames. And he will be there eternally, forever and ever and ever. But then it goes on, very next verse, talks about a judgment. Talks about the fact that there will be a great white throne. Let's read it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. By the way, this is Jesus who was seated on the throne. He will be the judge. 
He's the only one qualified to be the judge. He will do that. And then it says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Everyone who will be before, who will be before Christ will want to flee, but will have nowhere to go. They will be held accountable. And I saw the dead, great and small. This is referencing everyone, every single person who is not in heaven will be there before that throne. And then it says, books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The first group of books will be a record of the sins of those who will there be there before the throne. And everyone will be found guilty. And then this second book, the book of life, is open, which is a listing of all those who have repented of their sin, have put their faith, their trust in Christ for their salvation. Their names will be listed. Unfortunately, everyone who will be there at this time, they will hunt for their names and they won't find them. Their names will be missing from that book of life. And then it goes on to say, in verses 14 and 15, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Remember I said Hades is temporary? This is where it ends. It's taken, actually thrown into the lake of fire. It's done. It says this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As I said, everyone there will be found guilty. Everyone there will be judged by being thrown into the lake of fire. Some people protest and they say, well, God's a loving God. Why would he send anyone to hell? It's a good question. God is loving, but he's also just. Imagine if someone would assault you so severely that you would have permanent injuries. The person would be caught, would be taken before the judge, and the judge would feel sorry for them and let them go. In this case, the judge might be loving and compassionate, but totally unjust. God is loving But he's also a just God who cannot let sin just slide. Sin must always be punished in some way. Thankfully, he has provided a way of escape from hell so that we will not go there, but instead go to heaven when we die. And He's done that by being loving and just at the very same time. 
Let me illustrate it this way. You see, diagram there, that was me on the left side, and that is you. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone has rebelled against God in some way. It takes one sin to be a sinner. That's our problem. And there's a penalty for that, and that is eternal death in the lake of fire. What hope is there? Some people try to just do good works, do nice things, give money to the church. All of these are wonderful things, but they all fall short. We can never be good enough to redeem ourselves from the sin in our lives that keeps us from heaven. Thankfully, Jesus. This is the good news. This is the wonderful news. And by the way, good news to me seems very, very good in light of the bad news. Sometimes you have to see the bad news first before the good news makes so much sense. Jesus came and He bridged that gap by taking the guilt of each one of us upon Himself when He died on that cross, when He was crucified. His physical injuries were horrible. The spiritual weight of our sin that He took upon Himself was even greater. And Jesus died in our place for every sin that we have committed, past, present, or even future. So that all we need to do is not work harder, try harder, but simply put our faith in Jesus as our personal Savior, repenting of our sin, admitting that we are terrible sinners in His sight, deserving hell, but Christ died in our place. I love this verse. John 3.36. It's got bad news and good news. Let me read the bad news first. The second sentence says this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We know the meaning of the word obey there is believe or trust. Because of the first part of the verse that says, whoever believes in the Son, that's Christ, has eternal life. The message of the Gospel, the good news, is just so simple and so freeing. We don't have to make ourselves better. We simply put our faith in what Christ has done when He died for us. And I think it could look something like this. You, in the privacy of your own heart, you can do it right now. You can do it when you get home, but do it quickly. 
pray to God in your own stumbling words, admit that you have sinned against Him. You're a terrible sinner. You've offended His holiness. And that you deserve hell. But then thank Him that He sent Jesus who died on the cross and in so doing took the horrible wrath that you deserved upon Himself as your substitute. And then ask Him to be your Savior. I'm going to pray and give you an opportunity to do that right now if the Lord moves you to do that. In the quietness of your own heart with your heads bowed, I'd like to have you silently pray if these words are the heart's cry of your own self. Lord, I'm a terrible sinner in Your sight. I've offended Your holiness. I deserve Your horrible wrath in hell. But I thank You that Jesus Christ came in my place. I thank You that He took all of my guilt on Himself. I thank You that He died for me. I want Him to be my Savior. I thank You that I am in Christ and that heaven will be my eternal home. And if you prayed that, come and talk to me or talk to somebody else that you trust. Tell them, and I want to pray for you right now. Lord God, you are so holy, so righteous, and we are not. But I thank you that Jesus has come. Thank you that he came, died as my personal substitute. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, the Spirit of God would open up our eyes to understand what Christ has done. To the end, Lord, that we would appreciate and worship and be thankful And we thank you, Lord, that heaven awaits every single one who is part of that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.